Hello and welcome. This is Twisted Travel and True Crime, and I'm your host, Sandy. I just want to give a really quick heads up before I start this episode that my family all came down with COVID, including myself, over the past week. So if you hear a strangeness in my voice, it is because I am still clogged up. But the good news is I've got an opportunity to get this podcast out. So here we go. In the dark early hours of an October morning in 2009, an anonymous person phoned in a tip to police officers in the French city of Malouse. The caller stayed on the line just long enough to relay a very strange message. Go to the Rue de Tilloul across from the customs office. You'll find a man tied up. A few minutes later, two police cars would arrive at the scene with their red and blue lights flashing. Looking through an iron gate, they saw a dingy courtyard sandwiched between two four-story buildings. A man named Dieter Krombach was lying on the ground. His hands and feet were tied, and his mouth was gagged. He had been punched repeatedly in the head and face and thrown out the back of a car. Though thoroughly roughed up, he was very much alive. When the police removed the gag from his mouth, the first thing he said was, Bambersky is behind it. Then he told a story of three Russian men who beat him badly and kidnapped him from his home. They forced him into a car and drove away. At one point, one of the men held out a knife and was threatening to cut off Dieter's genitalia. The men eventually just dumped him, all tied up on the ground where he lay in the freezing cold for quite a while before police arrived, and Dieter named Andre Bambersky as the one behind his kidnapping. Earlier that same October morning... Miles away, Andre Bambersky answered his ringing telephone. The voice informed him that Dieter Krombach was in Malouse. Andre Bambersky gathered his things to leave, but not before packing 20,000 euros that he had promised the abductors. Why would one man abduct another and leave him tied up for police to find? Well, it turns out he had a very good reason. Although these two men growing up had very similar backgrounds, there was one huge difference. One of them was a serial rapist and murderer. They both grew up in Europe at a time where it was ravaged by World War II. They had seen the horrors of the war firsthand. Dieter Krombosch was born in 1935 in Dresden, and when he was nine years old, he survived the first Allied firebombing that killed at least 30,000 civilians. Andrei Bambersky was born two years after Dieter in 1937. He was the son of a family that had immigrated to France in the early 30s. He was living with his grandparents when the Nazis invaded Poland. Andre witnessed starvation, street fighting, and executions by the Nazi SS. In 1945, he would be reunited with his parents by the International Committee of the Red Cross. His experiences under German occupation would later contribute to his assumption that corruption, inhumanity, and hostility in the world still infected Germany's politics and judicial system. Andre became an accountant, and Dieter became a doctor of internal medicine. They both had what seemed to be happy lives of wealth and apparent domestic harmony. They both had married and had children in the 1960s. In 1974, these two men and their families would find themselves living on the same street in the Moroccan city of Casablanca. Dieter was a physician working with the German consulate, and Andre was busy accounting. Their children attended the same school, and it was there among the mosques, gorgeous architecture, and beaches of Morocco 
that Dieter would start an affair with Andre's wife, Danielle, while their children played together. Danielle Gronin was an attractive 30-something daughter of a French expatriate who had settled in Morocco in the 1950s. Because their daughters were friends and often had playdates together, Dieter and Danielle would often cross paths. It started as small talk, but eventually it turned into long, full conversations while their children played together in Dieter's swimming pool. Dieter was persistent and obvious. One day, while Danielle was picking her daughter up from a play date, she mentioned that she was going to be out of town for a few weeks, so the girls wouldn't get to see each other. Dieter replied, saying that perhaps he'd go on vacation at the same time as Danielle was going. In fact, he'd even stay at the same resort. If Danielle wanted him to join her, she should call his house and let the phone ring one time. So this must be how cheating worked in the 70s. Dieter was still married, but in the midst of a divorce from his second wife. His first had died. Danielle resisted Dieter's obvious come on, but shortly after this happened, Danielle and her family were in a very bad car accident, and Dieter, the doctor and family friend, came to the rescue. Andre and Danielle's daughter, Kalinka, had received a bad concussion. Dieter made sure Kalinka got the very best treatments possible, and ended up spending a lot more time with Danielle. Kalinka responded well to the treatments. Perhaps Dieter's care for her daughter and their time together softened Danielle's resolve. She and Dieter started bumping uglies. About a month after the affair started, Andre would find several cassette tapes in his home. Apparently, Dieter had been tape recording love messages for Danielle. Andre confronts Danielle and calmly asks her whether she loved Dieter. She told him that she didn't and that Dieter just wouldn't leave her alone, and she felt guilty. She apologized and begged forgiveness. He accepted her apology and excuses, but told her they needed to move away from Dieter, so they did. They left Morocco and headed to France. Once there, things seemed to be going well. Danielle was working on their marriage, and Andre was working towards forgiveness, but he still didn't trust her completely, and probably never would again. Let's be honest. Oddly, in 1975, Danielle tells Andre that she was offered a job at a real estate office in Nice. She had been doing real estate locally, but Nice was 350 miles away. Her plan was to rent an apartment there during the week and come home on the weekends. The strange thing was that she wouldn't give Andre the name or phone number of the real estate office. Red flags, left and right here, folks. I guess she expected Andre to take care of the kids on his own, too, while she, air quotes here, worked. Obviously suspicious of this, Andre followed her one Sunday evening and watched when, instead of driving towards Nice, she parked her car in the garage of an apartment building in Toulouse. She stayed there for the week, and when he asked the concierge about her, the man responded, saying, Oh, yes, that woman is Madame Crombosch. She had never ended the affair, and the only real estate she was showing Dieter was her own landscaping. Obviously, Andre was broken-hearted. The Bamberskis divorced. At this point, as many of us would be, Andre was filled with hate towards Danielle and Dieter. 
The new couple would move in together in 1975, and they married in 1977. Initially, Danielle gave custody rights to Andre, and almost seemed as though she didn't want the burden of her children while she was building a relationship with Dieter. The children lived primarily with Andre from 1975 until July of 1980. At this point, Andre decided he wanted to return with the children to Morocco. According to Andre, the move to Africa was within his legal rights, but it pissed Danielle off, and it would have painful consequences for Andre. Days after he left France, Danielle filed a complaint against him in court demanding custody of their children. Andrea's attorney said not to challenge the motion because his wife's civil case included an accusation of non-presentation of children. Her charges were serious enough that he surrendered custody but resettled nearby so he could continue to see the children regularly. In July of 1982, Andre's son and daughter began living with Danielle and Dieter, and Andre agreed to see his children only during vacations. He seemed to give in to Danielle's demands fairly easily. Maybe Andre would have been more determined to challenge his wife in court if he had known about Dieter's darker side. He already had enough reason to hate the man for his part in the affair and Andre's new, broken family, but there was more he didn't know about. Dieter's first wife, Monica Hentz, died at the age of 24 in the 1960s. Monica's mother would later allege that Dieter, the young promising doctor of internal medicine, who graduated with honors from the University of Frankfurt, was also a wife-beater. He'd even threatened to kill Monica. Dieter was attracted to women much younger than he was. He had married Monica when she became pregnant with their first child. She was only 18 years old, and he was 28. A couple years later, they would have a second child, but shortly after their son was born, things began to change drastically. In 1969, Monica was stricken with a mysterious illness that rendered her mute and blind, and eventually paralyzed. She became sick and was taken to the hospital where, according to Monica's mother, Dieter elbowed aside the attending physician and administered a mysterious injection. A few hours later, Monica died from a cerebral hemorrhage. No definitive connection was ever made between the injection and Monica's death. Monica's mother had suspicions. Andre already had many reasons to hate Dieter, but what happened next would fuel his passion for justice for the next 30 years. Andre had a son and a daughter. His daughter Kalinka and Dieter's daughter, as I mentioned before, were good friends. In 1982, Kalinka was attending a French-language high school in a small German city in Freiburg. She lived there on campus, but spent most weekends and summers in nearby Lindau with Danielle and Dieter. She was on the cusp of turning 15. She was extroverted and pretty, with beautiful full lips and blonde hair falling to her shoulders and beyond, and bangs over her gorgeous blue eyes. In one picture, she's wearing a Mickey Mouse shirt and looks like the picture of good health. Although she loved it at the lake, she had recently broken the news to Danielle and Dieter that she was homesick, and she planned to move back with her father in August. In the meantime, for the month of July, she'd enjoy her time on Lake Constance. On Friday, July 9th, 1982, Kalinka Bamberski windsurfed on the lake. Lake Constance is the largest lake in Germany, but it's also one of the most beautiful bodies of water in Europe. 
Around 5 p.m., she returned home, tired, and according to Dieter, she complained that she felt unwell. The family sat down to dinner at 7.30, after which Kalinka decided to go to bed early. She got up to drink a glass of water at 10 p.m., and according to Dieter, she read in her downstairs bedroom until midnight when he asked her to turn off the lights. The following morning, sometime before 10 a.m., 47-year-old Dieter, who had prepared to go for an early morning horseback ride in the nearby mountains, came downstairs and attempted to wake Kalinka up. He found her laying in her bed on her right side, dead. Her body already showed signs of rigor mortis. Dieter would later tell medical examiners that he tried to revive her with different injections, one of which went directly into her heart. If that wasn't enough, he gave her doses of two other stimulants into her legs. You're probably thinking the same thing I did, and that is that he's a doctor. Clearly, she was dead if rigor mortis was setting in. I believe that happens six to twelve hours after death. So why would he give her injections trying to bring her back to life? At 10.30 a.m. that Saturday morning, the telephone rang at Andre's house with the news that his beloved daughter Kalinka was dead. He didn't understand how this could be. Kalinka was a healthy, athletic, teenage girl with a very limited history of medical trouble. How could this have happened? He asked his wife, begging her to explain. She said that Dieter had said perhaps Kalinka had died from heat stroke caused by too much time in the sun the previous day. Or maybe she had some long-term delayed effects from the car accident she'd had as a little girl in Morocco. Andre was overwhelmed with grief and was filled to the brim with questions. He flew to Germany, rented a car, and then drove the 50 miles to Lake Constance. He felt devastated for his children. They had been the biggest joys of his life. He drove to the hospital to see Kalinka's body. Once there, he said a prayer over her body. She was still dressed in white socks and the red nightshirt she had worn to bed two days earlier. Later that same day, he and his 11-year-old son Nicholas flew home to France to await for the arrival of Kalinka's body for burial. Right away, Andre had questions and suspicions. The shock and horror of Kalinka's death was made greater by the mystery surrounding it. He just couldn't understand how his vital, healthy daughter after a normal day of activity, could be found dead in her bed. He tried to find consolation in his faith, but nothing helped him make sense of the loss. The suspicions were bubbling up, and Andre turned them towards Dieter, who had been the last person to see Kalinka alive. In the weeks and months that followed Kalinka's death, he kept his suspicions to himself, but as time passed, he questioned the facts surrounding his daughter's death, and he became more vocal. In October of 1982, he finally received a translated copy of his daughter's autopsy report. He'd had to wait for it to be translated, since it was originally in German. He learned from the report that Dr. Holman, a forensic physician, had carried out the autopsy. Holman had been joined by a police superintendent, a local prosecutor, and guess who else? Dr. Dieter Krombach. This was strange, right? The last person to see Kalinka alive got to be there for the autopsy? Andre, of course, questioned this, but there were bigger concerns in the autopsy than Dieter's presence there. According to the report, her time of death was estimated to be between 3 and 4 a.m. 
Dr. Holman had discovered food particles in Kalinka's lungs and undigested food in her stomach. She had injuries to her throat, legs, and arms. There was fresh blood on Kalinka's vagina, a small tear there, and a viscous whitish-green substance inside. He also noticed a fresh puncture mark on Kalinka's right upper arm caused by an intravenous injection of cobalt ferlicet. This injection was used supposedly to help Kalinka tan. Dieter admitted to giving it to her right before dinner on that Friday evening, but later changed his story, saying that the treatment had been to treat her anemia. It hadn't been the first time he treated Kalinka with cobalt ferlicet. In fact, it was something he would regularly inject his patients with. No toxicology tests were done on her blood or tissue, nor had the doctor determined whether Kalinka was a virgin. The report declared that her cause of death was unknown. It was noted that Dr. Holman had sent tissue and blood samples to a forensics lab. A definitive judgment on the cause of death would have to wait until scientists had a chance to examine the specimens. This report gave Andre more questions rather than answers. What was Dieter doing at the autopsy? And why hadn't he said anything about any injections before? Most importantly, what had those toxicology reports determined? Andre was dealing with feelings of guilt, wondering if he had failed his daughter and if he could have done something to protect her. Those feelings fed his desire to find out the truth. So Andre called Danielle and asked her about the results of the testing. She promised she'd talk to Dieter and get back to him, but she didn't. When he called her back a few days later, she told him that no tests had been conducted. This made Andre furious. He told her that Kalinka had died while she and her husband, who was a doctor, was there. How could it be that the two of them seemed totally uninterested in finding out what happened to their daughter? Danielle replied with a rather blasé answer, saying that Kalinka died because it was her time to die. Andre disagreed. A terrible thought was clarifying in his mind. He believed that Dieter had raped Kalinka and then killed her to silence her. He met with two physicians in France, and they agreed that his suspicions had merit. Specifically, they pointed out the torn genitals and the presence of a fluid that looked like semen. They couldn't believe that she hadn't been tested to whether she had had intercourse. Andre hired a lawyer, and the lawyers put pressure on a German prosecutor to do further testing. In spring of 1983, a forensic scientist named Wolfgang Spann studied the tissue samples. The results cast the first official doubts on Dieter's story and painted a much more grim picture of the well-respected doctor. Spann condemned Dieter for using a dangerous substance, cobalt ferlicet, one that had no value for tan enhancement, and one that, even if it was used to treat anemia, should only be given in rare instances, like when someone is having a transfusion. Without close supervision, especially after injecting it, the drug could lead to nausea, fever, vomiting, and sometimes respiratory failure or cardiac arrest. Kalinka's lungs and esophagus contained small bits of food particles, so Spann suggested that what had happened was that after receiving the initial injection, Kalinka may have gone into anaphylactic shock, gone unconscious, and asphyxiated on her vomit. Spann also believed that Dieter had misled authorities about the time that had passed between the injection and Kalinka's death. This made more sense, 
because if she had died at three or four in the morning, as the first autopsy stated, she wouldn't have had still undigested food in her stomach from her dinner hours earlier. Span believed that her demise had been almost immediate after the injection. Unfortunately, Span was inconclusive about rape. Dr. Span questioned Dr. Holman, the man who conducted the first autopsy. Holman told him that the tear in Kalinka's vagina had occurred post-mortem, and that Dr. Dieter Krombach was only in the exam room for a moment to identify Kalinka's body. I find this strange because there was no question about her identity, so why did he need to identify her? Dr. Holman said that Kalinka's hymen was not ruptured, which made him believe that she was still a virgin. He conceded, however, that her hymen was small enough that penetration could have taken place. So, according to the German doctor, there was no rape. But the French doctor suspected foul play, and that Kalinka probably died from drowning in her own vomit. Probably wasn't a statement of scientific certainty, so the Germans closed the investigation into Kalinka's death. They stopped investigating Dieter. Perhaps they believed Andre was a jealous ex-husband and a vindictive man who was still angry over losing his wife to this local doctor, and that was why he kept pursuing the case. Dieter escaped further scrutiny from German authorities, but this wasn't the first time. It was later learned that the emergency physician who had pronounced Kalinka dead in her bed had never summoned police to the scene. He relented to Dieter's insistence that Kalinka's body be delivered directly to the morgue. Honestly, I'm sort of surprised an autopsy was performed at all. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. So the German authorities were done with Dieter, but Andre wasn't. He was convinced the man was guilty of killing his daughter. He traveled to Germany in 1983 and walked through Dieter's hometown during Oktoberfest, passing out flyers. The flyers featured a picture of Kalinka and a warning that Dieter Krombach was living close by and that he had raped and murdered Kalinka. Andre demanded justice. He walked along the lakeside promenade and through the town center. Along the way, he passed out many of his 5,000 copies to tourists, locals, and whoever would listen. Later that afternoon, Andre would be stopped by Diana Krombach, Dieter's oldest daughter, and two policemen. The police would arrest Andre and charge him with defamation of character. After 24 hours in custody, he turned over all the cash in his possession to bond out. Three months later, he would be sentenced to six months in prison, or he could pay a fine of 400,000 Dutch marks. This was a penalty that would make it impossible for him to set foot in Germany again until the statute of limitations ran out. Talk about a kick in the gut. Here's a man, a loving father, trying to get justice for his daughter, and instead he's fined heavily. The good news was, since his fine was in Germany, if he stayed out of there, he'd never have to pay it. This bump in the road didn't deter Andre from his goal. Since Kalinka was a French citizen, French authorities could begin their own murder investigation. 
and, if evidence was sufficient, they could issue an international warrant for Dieter's arrest. Andre poked and prodded authorities until, in 1985, they finally agreed to exhume Kalinka's remains. Unfortunately, this work failed to provide new clues, but it did reveal one disturbing thing, and that was that her genitals had been completely removed during the autopsy, and they were not included with the remains. The disappearance of her genitalia fed Andre's suspicions of a conspiracy within the hospital, and possibly even the government, to protect Dieter. Andre was beginning to feel lost. Try as he might, for years he couldn't make headway in his daughter's death. It wasn't until 1988 that German authorities finally complied with a request from French prosecutors. They sent lung, heart, skin, and other tissue samples taken from Kalinka's body to be analyzed at an Institute of Legal Medicine in Paris. The results led French pathologists once again to a near-certain conclusion that she would have died almost instantly after she received the cobalt injection. French prosecutors would charge Dieter with voluntary homicide. They believed the injection he gave Kalinka caused her death and that the injection was purposeful and was given with the intention of killing her. The French prosecutors asked German authorities to arrest him, but they refused. Dieter appeared unfazed by the French verdict, and honestly, he really had no reason to be fazed. Authorities in Germany considered the case to be closed, and the French trial in absentia was deemed illegal by German standards. This meant that Dieter was still able to live by Lake Constance and work as a doctor with a thriving practice. He led an absolutely normal life. Well, except for one thing and that was that he kept a series of mistresses and carried on affair after affair in his own home. In 1989, he and Danielle would divorce because he slept with one of her friends. But she still proclaimed his innocence, as did all three of their children. A little more than two years later, Dieter would marry his fourth wife, who, like his three previous spouses, was more than a decade younger than him, and they divorced soon after because, again, Dieter was a chronic cheater. There wasn't a lot of activity between Andre and Dieter for years. Although Andre pushed hard, prosecutors found no reason to reopen the investigation. The German government would maintain for years that they had closed the case and the doctor wouldn't be extradited to France. By most accounts, it appeared as if Dieter had escaped conviction. He felt safe in Germany. Maybe he even began to feel bold. Or maybe, like a dog returns to its vomit, a sinner returns to his sins. He wasn't able to restrain his dark desires. On the afternoon of February 11, 1997, a 16-year-old girl named Laura Steele went to Dieter's office for an endoscopic examination. His assistant was out to lunch. Dieter ushered the girl into his examination room, and he told her that the probe was likely going to be painful, so he asked if she would like to have an intravenous anesthetic. She consented to this and was promptly knocked out. When she woke up, Dieter was on top of her, completely naked. She said, I was shocked. I tried to move, but I was completely paralyzed. Dieter, apparently believing that she would remain silent, dropped her off in front of her home, but she went to her parents right away and reported the attack. It wasn't long before Andre would hear from a reporter who told him that Dieter was in jail. 
At first, Andre thought this was because finally justice was being done for Kalinka's murder. But the reporter clarified, saying that it was because he had raped a woman in his clinic. Six months later, a German judge would hear 16-year-old Laura's testimony, and they'd hear the results from the lab tests taken on the semen from her body. It was clearly Dieter's. Guess what his punishment would be? If you guessed that the judge considered Dieter's lack of criminal record in Germany and his prestige in the community and let him off the hook, you'd be right. His only punishment for drugging and raping a 16-year-old was that he had to surrender his medical license. Following the verdict, protesters gathered in front of the courthouse, including six women who claimed they'd been raped by Dieter too. All of them had kept quiet until now because of his status or because the anesthetic had fogged their memories. I'm sure they felt scared and alone until the truth came out. Dieter, the cheater and child rapist, tried to defend himself publicly by telling a French reporter that Laura had wanted to sleep with him. He claimed that she started taking her clothes off and that it was all over in five minutes. He stated on air that because she didn't say no, that implied consent. She was drugged. I believe he actually said something like, there's a Latin or Roman phrase that says silence means consent. He said that on air to a journalist about a girl he had incapacitated. He also threw shade on Andre, saying that he was crazy, and it was ridiculous for Andre to think that he made love to his daughter. He didn't need to. He was married, and he was happy with Kalinka's mother. I think he was rubbing Andre's nose in the fact that he had stolen Danielle in the first place. Also, that phrase, make love, when an adult is referencing a child, makes me want to throw up. More years went by, but Andre's fire was still burning. One day, he drove through the streets of Dieter's hometown and stopped at his house. Andre knocked on his door, confronting Dieter face to face. When the door opened, Andre told Dieter that he would always try to bring him back to France. He would bring him to justice, and he wouldn't give up. The doctor's response was, You're crazy. You're just out for vengeance. Andre said, No, you raped her. I know what you did. And then Dieter called the police after closing the door in Andre's face. In 1999, Andre quit his job to devote himself to the full-time pursuit and capture of Dieter. He had one hope, and that was that the police would find Dieter during one of his frequent trips across the German border to Austria or Switzerland, and that the police there, in one of those countries, would extradite him back to France. He spoke with the Austrian and Swiss authorities, handing out photos of Dieter and asking for their help but oftentimes he was treated rudely and brushed aside. On one occasion, Dieter was almost taken down. In 2000, a policeman on a train in western Austria recognized him from a photo Andre had distributed and placed him under arrest. Dieter spent three weeks in jail before an Austrian judge accepted Dieter's attorney's argument that the trial in absentia that had taken place in France had been illegal and ordered him to be released. Andre was beginning to get frustrated, partly because Dieter was becoming harder to track. His reputation was in the toilet. He was no longer allowed to practice medicine. His fourth wife had abandoned him, and now he had begun living a nomadic lifestyle. He bounced from place to place, but Andre tracked him wherever he went. 
When Andre was home, he made a website dedicated to the case and sent hundreds of letters to French senators, judges, prosecutors, and other officials. He was unrelenting. He even launched a campaign intended to embarrass France's highest authorities into taking action. He accused some of the leading magistrates of corruption. In 2006, police finally figured out what Dieter had been doing to make a living the last several years. His license had been revoked, but a woman in central Germany went for a routine examination at the clinic of her regular physician. Once there, she learned he had killed himself. The woman was treated by his replacement. The doctor's odd behavior and unusual backstory made her suspicious. She looked up the man's name on the Internet, and that's when she saw that Dieter shouldn't have been practicing medicine at all. She notified police to tell them where he was working, but by the time they went to confront him, he had already disappeared. Police found out that Dieter had secretly found periods of employment, short periods of employment, as a substitute physician. He'd worked at 28 different clinics and hospitals across Germany. What he would do is he would give the employers a photocopy of his medical certificate, saying that he'd lost the original. Out of the 28 employees he had and the hundreds of patients, no one had ever bothered to check his background. When they finally brought him in to face these charges, he was preparing to flee the country. He had packed a suitcase with clothes, a stack of money, and a penis pump. Yes, you heard what you heard. I can't even make this stuff up. Dieter would be brought to trial for fraud and practicing medicine without a license. A psychiatrist was tasked with examining him. This resulted in the psychiatrist saying that he was a chronic liar, a sexual predator, and a narcissist with delusions of grandeur. He admitted to many fugitive liaisons, including most recently a sexual encounter with a 16-year-old niece of his cleaning lady. He admitted to drugging her with Valium and another sedative. Another 16-year-old, who agreed to have sex with Dieter, would come forward to tell the court that the doctor would put drops of something in Danielle's drink. She would fall into a deep sleep, and while she slept in her bed, he would invite the girl over, and they'd have sex on the couch in the room right next to Danielle's. The psychiatrist deemed him to be a compulsive predator. If left without supervision, he would do it again. He was sentenced to two years and four months in prison. But after 18 months behind bars, he was set free in Germany. Sixteen months later, in October of 2009, Andre would hear from his sources that Dieter was again working in a substitute doctor's position. Andre kept looking, hoping to find information that would put Dieter back in prison. Instead, he found out that Dieter's landlord had put his house up for sale. Dieter had accepted a job in West Africa and was preparing to leave. If this happened, and he left Germany for Africa, Andre might lose him forever. The clock was ticking. Now we're drawing closer to the day of Dieter's kidnapping, but we aren't there just yet. Earlier that month, a man called Andre. The man identified himself as Anton and said he had a proposition. The man wanted to meet with Andre about Kalinka and promised that he would figure out a way to transport Dieter to France. Andre had raised the possibility of kidnapping Dieter in the past. He'd mentioned it to a private detective, waiters, members of hotel staff, and many others. He'd even tried paying people in the past to do it, but they'd run away with his money. Anton must have gotten word of Andre's past efforts from one of the many people Andre talked to about it. 
The two men met, and the general agreement was that the less Andre knew, the better. Anton asked for only 20,000 euros to cover expenses, saying that he was doing it for Andre, for humanitarian reasons. One week after their meeting, Andre would receive the phone call that Dieter had been found in bad shape and was in France. Police would find Andre in a hotel. They found 19,000 euros in cash in the hotel room safe. Andre was obviously and happily complicit in the kidnapping. Dieter's attorneys demanded that their client be released, but French authorities ordered him to be remanded in prison to await trial for the murder of Kalinka. In 2011, Dieter, at age 76, was transported from hospital prison to a courtroom. For 15 days, his trial proceeded. The court heard testimony from French and German toxicologists and pharmacologists who had examined Kalinka's tissue samples. Analysis of Kalinka's lung and heart tissue using methods that didn't exist in the 1980s revealed the presence of benzodiazepine, a powerful anesthetic. Conclusive evidence, prosecutors said, that Kalinka had been drugged the night of her death. Three German rape victims of Dieter described how they had been anesthetized and raped. The psychiatrist who had examined Dieter in prison portrayed him as a classic narcissist driven by the desire to influence others through charm or chemical means. The psychiatrist said he was incapable of empathy or self-criticism, but instead blamed others and denied his crimes. Instead, he rearranged the facts to suit his self-image. The court would hear from family members, including Dieter's son, Boris, who swore his father was innocent and that he would never have laid fingers on Kalinka. He never publicly wavered in his support. Danielle Gonan, on the other hand, seemed to be a changed woman. After she saw what Dieter had done and who he really was, she now described him as a seducer with an irresistible will. She said if he decided he wanted something, nothing could stop him. She said, he chose me because I was married, which represented an additional challenge for him. He was especially attracted to girls in their early teens because of what she described as the lure of the forbidden. During her testimony, Danielle recalled waking up around 9 a.m., much later than usual on the morning of Kalinka's death. She said she now suspected Dieter had slipped her sedatives the night before, and now she wanted the whole truth. Nicholas Bambersky, Kalinka's brother, Nicholas Bambersky, Kalinka's brother, had felt pulled back and forth between his parents for most of his life. At the trial, he tried to express his sense of betrayal by Danielle and Dieter. He asked how they could be satisfied with an unexplained death and had never tried to figure it out. Nicholas said that he never saw Dieter try to make an effort to find an explanation for his sister's death. Andre thought he knew the answer to his son's question. He thought it was simple. He believed that night, after the rest of the family went to sleep, Dieter saw Kalinka in the kitchen, slipped her a sedative, raped her, and then killed her with a lethal injection. Why? Well, because he lost his head. After he raped Kalinka, he thought about the consequences that were in store if he got caught, and he got scared. Dieter would be found guilty and would receive a 15-year sentence. Sixteen women would eventually come forward with claims of rape against him. After nine years and several attempts to appeal his conviction, Dieter Krombach would be released from prison on February 22, 2020, on medical grounds. 
before he died seven months later in a nursing home. Andre Bamberski confessed to his part in the kidnapping in 2014, and he was given a one-year suspended prison sentence. He's now in his 80s, and hopefully is enjoying some much-needed time off and peace of mind. His promise to find justice for his daughter's death was met after 30 years of consistent hard work and determination. If you're interested in learning more about this case, there's a great article in the Atavis magazine by Joshua Hammer. I quoted him several times in this podcast. There are several great podcasts about the case, including Unnatural, the episode is called Kalinka Bamberski, and Modern Moray has one called The Vigilante Trinity, The Father. There's also a Netflix special called My Daughter's Killer, which comes out this week. I haven't seen it yet, but I'm looking forward to watching it. Thank you so much for listening to Twisted Travel and True Crime. If you like what you heard today, please consider supporting the podcast. And I have someone I'd like to thank very much for doing just that. Tracy C., thank you so much. Your sponsorship goes a long way towards moving this little show forward. I'd also like to thank those of you who have rated and reviewed the podcast, including Tip6703, who gave me five stars and says, The host has a soothing voice. The ambient music playing softly as she tells the story is calming and relaxing. I never leave reviews, but thought this show was definitely worth it. Keep up the amazing work. Love the stories and the host. Thank you, Tip. I'd also like to thank CJ84 Ellen Micah Crystal, who I remember wrote a review before. She says, oh, wow, I loved the episode Under the Sea. Then she says, this is my second review, but this episode was so good. When I got to the part where Chris was brought out of the water and what happened next, just wow. So beautifully told, I cried. Of course, all of your stories are great. and not sure if you have a group page for discussions about the podcast, but I had to show my appreciation for your podcast again here. I do have a Facebook page where I am happy to discuss any podcast, so please Come visit me at Twisted Travel and True Crime on either Facebook, Instagram, or even TikTok, although I'm not that uh, busy on that on TikTok. Uh, I would love to hear from any of you. You can email me at Twisted Travel and True Crime, all written out at gmail.com. Always looking for case suggestions, so please feel free to reach out. Thank you all once again for listening, and as always, I'd like to wish you all fair winds, following seas, and safe travels of all kinds. Pandemically yours.